Welcome. I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. Our opening prayer is from the book of Genesis. The Lord was with Joseph, and he enjoyed great success and was assigned to the household of his Egyptian master. Welcome to this presentation, the second one on the story of Joseph as we find it in the book of Genesis, Joseph and his brothers, his father Jacob. In the first presentation, we met Jacob and his sons, and we saw that this was a dysfunctional family. The difficulties, the jealousies, the envy that was there Jacob the father doted upon Joseph more than the others with his very famous tunic, the robe that he gave him. And the brothers also disliked the fact that Joseph was a dreamer. He also got off without doing too much work in the family. And he had dreams that showed him to be superior to his brothers. And of course, this irked them to no end, so much so that they finally decided to do away with him. We're going to kill him, decided not to do that, rather sold him into slavery. And that's where we left it. We found that uh, he ended up in slavery. And then we had this interesting chapter, chapter 38, about one of the other brothers, Judah and his relationship with Tamar, his own relative, and what happened there. And it seems so out of place in the Joseph story. Joseph isn't to be seen at all. But yet it's very important, and we'll see as we go on now with this second part, it becomes even more important, because really, while this is the Joseph story, it's really about Judah who will, of course, be the most famous of the brothers because it will be from the line of Judah that the kings of Israel and the Messiah himself will come. And so this chapter that seems to intrude has really a very, very important purpose. It tells us of the character of Judah, as we saw in the last uh, presentation. So we pick it up now in chapter 39, and we're back to Joseph. Some time has elapsed. We don't know exactly how much. But we find that Joseph has been taken down to Egypt, and he is a slave of an Egyptian uh, official. And we have here is what I used for our opening prayer, a reference to the Lord being with Joseph. There are very few references to the activity of God in the Joseph story. This is one of the few. There are scant references. But they are put in at important times, junctures within the story, to remind us that even if God is not spoken of much, nor does God himself speak at all in the Joseph story, Yet he is still present, and he is still in control, and he is still working his will. 
And so we have the reminder as we begin chapter 39. We come back to Joseph. He is a slave. But things are going very well for him. He is put in charge of all of the uh, affairs of Potiphar. Potiphar is his master. And things seem to be going very well. And the Lord's blessing goes upon everything that Potiphar has as well. So God's influence extends even to the pagans. So the scene is set, but not everything is going well. The wife of his master, Potiphar, lusts after Joseph. She's very crass about it. Simply, after a while, it says in verse 7, his master's wife looked at him, that would be Joseph, with longing and said, and said, lie with me. And of course, Joseph will not do that. And we have a contrast here with Judah. Judah very willingly wanted to have relations with Tamar, not knowing who she was. But it was his relative, was his daughter-in-law. And Joseph, in contrast, resists. Judah succumbs to the passion. Joseph does not. He refused. And he does this, and she still, of course, insists for this. And finally, she has her chance when she's alone with Joseph and uh, comes towards him. And again, Joseph resists. She took hold of him by his cloak, saying, Lie with me. But leaving the cloak in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. The cloak, clothing again. All the way through this entire story, clothing is important. It was the very decorous, uh, beautiful robe, piece of clothing that Joseph had that irritated his brothers so much. It was part of the clothing, part of the uh, things that Judah had that he left as a pledge, his seal, his staff, which were as much a part of his as a piece of clothing when he was with Tamar. And now his cloak again. She grabs him by the cloak. He leaves it behind and he runs off for that. And so clothing will be important all the way through with this story. And we find it right away in chapter 39. But he escapes. And then she cries out to her servants. And she says to the servants, Look, my husband has brought us a Hebrew man to mock us. Ah, it's her husband's fault. He's the one who got this slave. Of course, that's Joseph. Poor that. He came in here to lie with me, but I cried out loudly. When he heard me scream, he left his cloak beside me and escaped and ran outside. Note this. It's exactly the opposite of what the narrator has told us actually happened. Joseph runs away from her. 
she grabs the cloak he's left behind and screams. When she tells the story, she reverses it. She screams when Joseph comes to seemingly attack her, to assault her. And when she screams, then he leaves. But what really happened was he left and then she screamed. So it's just the opposite. So her story has changed for that, of what really happened. And then when Potiphar, her husband, the master of the house, the master of Joseph, the slave, comes back, she tells the story. Now she tells it, again, consistent to what she has told the servants. But it's wrong from what actually happened. And she starts out again. The Hebrew slave whom you brought us came to me to amuse himself at my expense. But when I screamed, he left his cloak beside and escaped outside. Now, she was the one that initiated it, and it's not her husband's fault. Of course, always blame someone else. How true to the human situation. And, of course, the master hears this story from his wife, and he then puts Joseph into jail. He believes what his wife has said. Joseph has no real defense for this. But note the subtle change there. And the narrator doesn't tell us that uh, this is going on in the sense of explaining it as a modern author might. Just simply puts it out there of what happened and then what she said happened. And we have to be careful. We have to be uh, cognizant of it. We have to Listen and read very closely and pick up on these clues that are there for this. So he ends up in jail, Joseph. But in verse 21, the narrator tells us again, the Lord was with Joseph, even while he is in jail. And again, that's all that we find of the references of the activity of God. Just reminders. God doesn't say anything. And he doesn't really do anything, but he's there. He knows what's going on. He is in charge. That is what we are to deduce from this. And just like when Joseph was in the service of Potiphar, while he's in jail, things go well for the jailer for this. Again, because the Lord is with Joseph and all those who are near Joseph benefit from that. And it will happen again as well for this. So he's in sort of what we could say it would be almost like a house arrest or something. It's not really a, uh, a kind of jail uh, that we might first think of, but he is in custody. Come then to chapter 40 and the royal cupbearer and the baker, the royal baker in some way offend the Pharaoh, and uh, they end up in jail as well for this. And they end up with in the same place, in the same jail that Joseph is for that. And they both have dreams. Ah, Joseph is the interpreter of dreams. And so they talk to him about their dreams. They want to know what the interpretation of them are for this. 
And the chief cupbearer tells Joseph his dream in verse 9. He said, I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine there were three branches. It had barely budded when its blossoms came out, and its clusters ripened with grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes, pressed them out into the cup, and put it in Pharaoh's hand. Where that? All right. Joseph says to him, well, here's the interpretation. Three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will single you out and restore you to your post. What he says in there in the original Hebrew, he talks about lifting the head. And this could have one of three meanings to in the Hebrew. To lift the head could mean to look up, to take notice of something. If you are looking down doing something and something comes by or somebody comes up, you look up and you recognize them. So just simply the fact of recognizing, noticing somebody. To lift the head could also mean something positive in the sense of raising someone up or exalting someone. The idea of lifting them up in the sense of their stature or their importance. You lift the head. And that... Uh, and so the idea of that, of someone who is uh, being honored, it also, though, can mean to lift the head off your shoulders in a sense of to behead someone, to execute them, all in the same word. And so what's happened here is uh, we've got a couple of things going on. Pharaoh has lifted the head of this royal cupbearer. He's taken notice of him and he's restored him. So the first and the second meanings of that. He's exalted him. He's honored him again. He's returned him to his job. And this is the interpretation that Joseph gives. And all he asks in verse 14 is, only think of me when all is well with you. And please do me the great favor of mentioning me to Pharaoh to get me out of this place. All right. And so he is released. Then the baker, who is also in the jail, after he hears that favorable interpretation that Joseph gave to the cupbearer, said, I too had a dream. Now, what's his dream? Well, in keeping with being the Baker, he said, in the dream, I had three baskets of bread on my head. There were all kinds of bakery products for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. And Joseph said, well, I will interpret that for you. The three baskets are three days, just like the three branches were for the cupbearer. Within three days... Pharaoh will single you out. In other words, take notice of you. Raise your head. Raise the head. But it'll be that third interpretation. It will behead you and impale your head on a stake. And birds will eat your flesh. And that's what happens. The dream interpretation is true. So there is... A banquet. That's Pharaoh's birthday, actually. And he singles out. He raises the head of the chief cupbearer. 
and the chief baker in the midst of his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office. So they again handed the cup to Pharaoh. But the chief baker, he cut his head off and put it on a stake, just as Joseph had said. And so true to human nature. In verse 23, the narrator simply tells us, Yet the chief cupbearer did not think of Joseph. He forgot him. Remember, Joseph had said, Look, when things are going well for you, put in a good word for me. Get me out of here. Remember me. Hmm. He forgot him. At least for now. That brings us to chapter 41. Two years now go by. And Pharaoh has a dream for this. And he sees... Uh, seven cows that are great, fat, healthy, good-looking, and they're grazing in the grass. Seven other cows that are gaunt, starving, come up out of the Nile, and they go and stand next to the seven healthy ones. Okay? And what they do is the hungry ones eat the fat, healthy cows. Then Pharaoh has yet another dream. There's seven ears of grain that are healthy, growing on a stalk. And then there are seven ears of grain that are scorched and withered by a hot wind for that. And the one, of course, destroys the other. Then he wakes up again. So he wants to know what is all of this about. So he asks all of the sages of Egypt, what it means, but nobody can interpret it. And then, at that point, in verse 9, the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Now I remember my negligence. Sure, because now it's very convenient. He can suggest Joseph to come in after all the other interpreters of dreams of the Egyptians can't do it. And it'll help him the cupbearer, in his status before Pharaoh. So he says, I am reminded, as a matter of fact. And he tells him the story of this. He says, there is somebody who can tell you the interpretation. Of course, that's Joseph. And he uses his own example for that. And also, too, about what happened to the baker. That Joseph was right both times. So Pharaoh, in verse 14... Has Joseph summoned and they're brought to him? He's brought to him. He said, I had a dream, but I hear that you can interpret dreams. Interesting. Joseph says, It's not I, but it is God who will interpret it through me. Joseph could have taken credit for it. He said, Sure, I can do this. He says, No, he gives the credit to God in his humility for this. So Pharaoh tells him what the dream is. Now, it's the same, but it's interesting. As he tells it now to Joseph, the same dream is related, and the facts are the same, but he exaggerates it. He embellishes it this time in Italian as you read it. And these are uh, the ugliest cows you've ever seen and, and things such as that. It's a good story for this. And Joseph says, God has made known the meaning. It's God that has done it. 
and he tells what the meaning is. There's going to be seven good years and seven bad years. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he, God, is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are now coming through the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will rise up after them. And he predicts this, of course. And Pharaoh sees this and realizes this and realizes that Joseph knows these things. And Joseph says, let Pharaoh seek out a discerning and wise man to put in charge of the land of Egypt. Sure, and who better than Joseph? And so it does happen that way. And it is interesting that in verse 38, we read, Could we find another like him? Pharaoh asked his servants, A man so endowed with the Spirit of God, even this pagan ruler realizes the power that Joseph has because of God, recognizes God's power. And, of course, then Joseph gets the job to be in charge of everything. In verse 40, You shall be in charge of my household, and all my people will obey your command. Only in respect to the throne, I will outrank you. So Joseph becomes number two in the land of Egypt. I put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And, of course, he gets all the trappings of his job. It's a, a signet ring from Pharaoh put on his finger, he dresses him and dresses him in robes of fine linen, there's clothing again, and put a gold chain around his neck, get him ride in his second chariot, and they saw, uh, shouted Abrek before him at some kind of honorific title. We have no idea what it really means uh, in Egyptian or that. But it shows the great power and influence that Joseph has. So he gives him all of this power, he actually changes his name, uh, which is significant in the Bible. It means that the, when a name change is given, it's given usually from a superior to an inferior, and it signifies uh, some kind of public mission that will be done. And also it's like saying that this is a whole new person, a whole different person because of the change that has happened. And so... It happens in the Old Testament from Abram to Abraham, from Sarai to Sarah, Jacob to Israel. It happens in the New Testament, of course. Simon to Peter and Saul to Paul. For that. So this is significant here. Uh, Joseph does very well. And he, uh, we find out in verse 46, he was 30 years old when he entered into the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And during the seven years of plenty that come first, they have abundant crops. And so Joseph wisely stores everything that he can and takes care to make sure that all of the crops are brought in and that it is protected. They are stored. They're in warehouses and such before the famine sets in. Things work out very, very well for Joseph with he also becomes the father of two sons, and that information is given there as chapter 41 ends. Now, chapter 42 then switches back to the land of Canaan to Jacob and the other brothers for this. And it doesn't start out well. 
When Jacob learned that grain rations were for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you keep looking at one another? Again, the animosity that's there. The edge that he's got as he speaks to his sons. He says, there's grain for sale, go get some. So they go down to Egypt to get some. But in verse 4, we are told, Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he thought that some disaster might befall him. Again, he's playing favorites. He doesn't care about the others, and we're going to see this recur as this story continues on. Jacob is the father, and he's responsible for a lot of the dysfunction in this family. He has favored Joseph. He's going to favor Benjamin, and uh, as well another one. And we'll see why with this as we go through. But again, he keeps one behind, lets the other ones go. So Joseph is in charge down in Egypt. They don't know it's Joseph. But in verse 6, his brothers come. They bow down to him with their faces to the ground. They do him homage. He is this great and powerful figure. And that was one of the dreams that Joseph had at the beginning of this story. One of those dreams has been fulfilled. They don't know it, but it has. He's, they've bowed down to him, and that's what was going to happen. This is one of the things that got Joseph's brother so mad at him. He said, I had this dream. You guys all bowed down to me. You can imagine how that went over with them. But we also are told in verse 7, he recognized them as soon as he saw them, but he concealed his identity. So here's a situation where the narrator has told us something that even the characters themselves don't know. That doesn't spoil it for us. Actually, that can make it all the more exciting for us, because we know we're in on the secret. Think of, for instance, a favorite movie that you might have, if it's a mystery or something, uh, that you've seen it, and then you find out, okay, you know how it turns out, you know how it ends, you know who did it, and everything, but you still can go back and watch the movie again, and you can enjoy it, even though you know how it's going to end, and who done it, as they say, or well, we know. We know it's Joseph, but they don't. And so we'll see how this works out. And he speaks very harshly to them. He accuses them of being spies for this. And of course, they have no clue that it's Joseph. When Joseph recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him, he was reminded of the dreams he had about them. And he doesn't come out and say, hey, I'm Joseph, I'm your brother. Oh, no. That doesn't happen. Not for a long time. He said, you are spies. You have come to see the weak points of the land. And they say, no, 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 no. Not at all. We just come to buy food. We're sons of the same man. We're honest men. We've never been spies. But Joseph won't give up. Not so. It's for the weak points of the land that you have come to see. The spy on it for reconnaissance for perhaps an invasion of it or that. It's the furthest thing from their minds. 
were your servants. Verse 13, We your servants, they said, are twelve brothers, sons of a certain man in Canaan. But the youngest one is at present with our father, because he wouldn't let that youngest one go with them, and the other is no more. Hmm. That's Joseph. They don't say he's dead, or we got rid of him, or anything. It just, he's no more. No, what happened? They don't say. And of course, Joseph knows that he's that one. And he again accuses them of being spies. He says, you're going to be tested for this. And so he has the idea that he will lock them up for a few days, make them sweat a little bit over all this. And on the third day, he says to them, do this and you will live, for I am a God-fearing man. And he certainly is, Joseph is, for that if you're honest, let one of your brothers stay while the rest of you can bring the grain back as you originally wanted to do for this. But you've also, when you come back, if you ever come back, you must bring your youngest brother. Then it'll be verified that you weren't lying to me. Well, they agree to that. That seems simple enough. To one another, they said, hmm, it starts to dawn on them. Truly, we are being punished because of our brother, meaning Joseph, for this. They begin to realize. And then Reuben, the oldest one, speaks up. Did I not tell you? Do no wrong to the boy. Well, yes, he had done that. That's true. But he had his own ulterior motives, remember, if you go back to the earlier part of the story. He didn't want them to kill Joseph because he wanted to get Joseph and return him to Jacob, their father. And then that would increase his status amongst all the rest of them. So he had other motives for that. And then, of course, they sold him into slavery, and Reuben comes back, and then he doesn't know what to do. He's gone for that. Uh, and think so. So now he's throwing that back up to them for it. And Reuben is the oldest. He's really responsible for all the others. And interestingly, the narrator tells us then something. In verse 23, they did not know, of course, that Joseph understood what they said, since he had been speaking through an interpreter, which, being Egyptian, as they thought he was, he would need an interpreter in that. They have no idea he can understand everything that they're saying. It just makes it more exciting for us. What's going to happen here? So they get their grain. They also get all their money replaced without their knowing it. And it's not till at night when they check their bags, when they're trying to feed the animals fodder, that they find out not only do they have all this food that they thought they had bought, but they got their money back as well for it. Now what are they going to do? Because they barely got away with their first encounter with Joseph. Now they're going to have to go back. And they're going to think, uh, what are we going to say to him or that, for that? 
so they're in a real dilemma there for it. They go back to their father Jacob first, and they told, tell him everything that's happened. The man who was lord of the land spoke to us harshly, put us in custody, thought he were, we were spies. Uh, we said, we are twelve brothers, sons of the same father, but one is no more, and the youngest one is with our father in Canaan. All true, but one is no more. Again, can't come to terms with the fact that they think Joseph is dead, and it's their fault. They're not going to deal with that for it. But they did tell the truth as far as they went. Uh, in speaking to Joseph, uh, not even knowing it's Joseph. And then now they've got to come back with the younger brother to get the one who is in custody for this. It's like holding a hostage. What Joseph has done is something that was a common practice there. You had a hostage that would stay. Uh, this happened in ancient cultures. The Romans did it and such all the way through. Uh, and that's what's happening there. So that's not that unusual. But now they got their money back, too. Now what are they going to do? Their father Jacob, in verse 36, says to them, Must you make me childless? Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin away. Well, what about the other brothers? In Jacob's mind, they don't count. So they weren't full brothers of the same mother. That's one reason why... Jacob doted on those for that. Now they got to bring their youngest one with them in order to get the other one that's the hostage back there. Okay, and Joseph is gone. And so doesn't care about the other nine that much. They don't really count that much for that. Then Reuben speaks up, again the oldest. But what does he say? He may kill my two sons if I don't return him to you. Oh, that's wonderful. Kill your grandchildren. That's no solution. Put him in my care and I will bring him back to you. That doesn't seem to be a very viable situation or solution to the problem. With that. Jacob replied, my son will not go down with you. Now that his brother is dead, he is the only one left. What about the other nine? They're all brothers. Should some disaster befall him on the journey you must take, you would send my white head down to Sheol in grief. Sheol being underworld. But Sheol, too, in the Hebrew, is also a derogatory term for Egypt. And, of course, that comes out of their history and tradition. They will be enslaved in Egypt before the exodus out that Moses brings them out. So there was always a derogatory uh, taint, if you will, to the idea of Egypt. And so it's a play on words of that, of the underworld, this dark kind of evil, uh, mysterious place. And then the idea of Egypt being an evil place. I mean, it's a play on that. So it talks about Sheol and going to Sheol. Because the irony of it is, of course, he will end up going to Egypt, and that will save the family. As you know, the story ends that way. We're getting a little bit ahead, but the play on words that are in, that's in there. Brings us to chapter 43. The famine grows worse. 
And so they've got to do something now. But what are they going to do? They've got to come back with the other brother. They would probably be accused of stealing that food with this. And so what do we, what, what's left for them? What, what plan of action could they have for this? Israel, in verse 6, that means Jacob. Jacob has both names. It's both Jacob and Israel. And says, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? Well, they were just telling the truth. But this is not out of character for Jacob. Remember the story of Jacob and his brother Esau. And it was by lying, by deception, that he got the birthright with the connivance of his mother. And so, true to form, Jacob says, what you tell him the truth for? Jacob didn't tell the truth. Worked for him. Interesting how this plays through here, if you remember your Bible history. And so it continues on. They said, we just we thought truth was the best thing to do. How could we know that he'd say, bring your brother here or hold one as a hostage or that? Well, but he did. Then in verse 8, Luke chapter 43, Judah urged his father Israel, let the boy go with me that we may be off and on our way. And we and our children will keep from starving to death. Verse 9, I myself will serve as a guarantee for him. Reuben wanted to put up his grandchildren. Judah was not a very good character, we found from chapter 38. Now, at least at this point, he makes the promise that he will step in. He will take the responsibility. He'll put his life on the line. Well, will he do it? Will he actually be true to his words? That remains to be seen. But here he promises it. We start to see the change in his character. He was a man who cared little about anything in the earlier chapters. And especially the way he treated Tamar, his own daughter-in-law, and everything that happened there. Now, he stands up and shows some character. But, will he really do it? And, he also puts a little dig in in verse 10. Had we not delayed, we could have been there and back twice by now. Let's get going. Okay, so Israel says to them, It must be so, then do this. They're going to take and bring all kinds of gifts for this official in Egypt. Of course, it's Joseph. It was Joseph. We're going to bring all kinds of gifts. We're also going to take money, and we're going to take double the amount of money. We'll pay for the first set of grain that we got, and we'll get some more for that. And also, to yes, take your brother and go back to the man. Okay. For this. So they do that. They took the gifts, double the money, and they take Benjamin. And they go back there. Now, 
Joseph sees them, and he sees Benjamin. So he tells his steward, take the men into the house, and we're going to have a feast. They are to dine with me. Okay. So the steward conducts them to the house. Now, they're worried. They're really scared. Or that. So they decide they're going to take the initiative. In verse 19, so they went to Joseph's steward and talked to him at the entrance to the house. As they figure they're being led into the house because they're going to be punished. That Joseph knows, of course they don't know it's Joseph, but this Egyptian official knows he was cheated. He was swindled out of the rain. And they kept their money and everything and whatever else. And they had no idea what to expect. So they decide they're going to come clean with the steward. With an explain to it. Look, this is what happened. We didn't really want to steal it or that. We thought we had paid for it, but we didn't pay for it and everything. And it's interesting. The steward, of course, he's been in on all this because he's the one that's got to carry out Joseph's commands. He says, calm down. Do not fear. Your God and the God of your father must have put the treasure in the bags for you. So he tries to excuse it away and tries to reassure them. As for your money, I received it. Don't worry. You're okay. All right. And he brings out Simeon, who's been there as a hostage during this time. We don't know how long all this took to go back and forth, but it would have been some time. So they're relieved with that. For it. And they bring their gifts and everything, and they're going to dine with uh, Joseph. And so they're a little bit relieved, maybe even more than a little bit relieved for this. So Joseph comes to the house for this great big feast, this dinner. And when they come inside his house, they bow down before him to the ground. There it is again. The fulfillment of that first dream that he had way back in the beginning of the story. And so he talks to them. He's pleasant to them now. He's not accusing them of being spies. He says, how's your aged father? If he misspoke, is he still alive? And they said, oh, yes, yes, he is. Okay, and then Joseph sees Benjamin, who he hasn't seen for years. He says, is this your youngest brother, of whom you told me? May God be gracious to you, my son. And they're very pleasant with them. Okay. But it's hard for Joseph. And the narrator tells us that he had to go out of the room. And he cried even. And he's got to get himself composed and come back in. After washing his face, he reappeared having collected himself and give the order to serve the meal with this. Now, so it's served separately to him because the Egyptians don't eat with uh, foreigners, especially with Hebrews. And so Joseph, he keeps all the customs and everything. He's keeping the ruse going. They have no idea it's him. He plays along with it. He's probably still using an interpreter and such, but he can understand it. Now, when they were seated before him according to age, from oldest to youngest, they look out in amazement, but it doesn't click in their mind. How does he know this? There's 12 of them, and he knows exactly how to put them in order. It's a clue, but they don't pick up on it. Of course, we know how he could do this. We know exactly how he could do this for it. And... Portions are brought to them from Joseph's table. That was an, a, uh, a sign of honor uh, that from the head table, uh, a certain amount or certain foods were brought out. It was a way of honoring the guests. 
for that. Uh, Benjamin's was five times as large as anyone else's for that. Again, because he's his full brother uh, with that. And uh, everything seems to be going well. Now we move into chapter 44. He talks to the steward again. He says, fill the men's bags with as much food as they can carry. Put each man's money back in the mouth of the bag. And in the mouth of the youngest one's bag, put also my silver goblet. Now he's planting something there for that, together with the money. And the steward does it. It's interesting, the steward does not question. Does exactly what he is told. He's in on all of it. Never betrays any of the knowledge that he has. Doesn't tip off the brothers or anything. Joseph says, do this. The steward does it. With that. He obeys without question. Does this and is told. And so it sets it up again. In that. Uh, and so, of course, they're going to be caught at this. For this. And... We know already what's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. And, of course, it does. They get a certain amount of way there, and the steward goes after them, arrests them in a sense. They bring them back for it. And um, it's interesting in verse 15. It says, How could you do such a thing, Joseph asked them, did you not know that such one as I could discern by divination what happened? In other words, he could interpret dreams and such. Don't you think he'd have the power to know what's going on? Because they've got his goblet. They've stolen the way it looks, the way it was set up by the steward. They stole his goblet. And he says, you know, I have these powers to be able to interpret dreams and such. That doesn't tip them off or anything. Might have. It's another clue. He says, don't you think I'd be able to figure out somebody stole something like my goblet or that for it? And Judah speaks up. What can we say to my Lord? How can we plead or how try to prove our innocence for it? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. Here we are then. Slaves of my Lord, the rest of us no less than the one in whose possession the goblet was found. Remember, it was planted on youngest bag. And he says, we're all guilty. Interesting. This is coming from Judah. Interesting. His character has changed. Joseph said, far be it for me to act thus. Only the one in whose possession the goblet was found shall become my slave. The rest may go back unharmed to your father. Verse 18. Judah then stepped up to him and said, I beg you, my Lord, let your servant appeal to my Lord and do not become angry with your servant, for you are the equal of Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a brother? Do you have a father or another brother? We answer truthfully for this. Verse 20 says, So we said to my Lord, We have an aged father and a younger brother, the child of his old age. This one's full brother, that would be Joseph, 
is dead. First time any of the brothers admit it. And since he is the only one by his mother who is left, his father is devoted to him. He certainly is for that. Judah is telling the truth and admits it. And he continues on with this. And the story continues on. And your servant, my father, said to us, as you know, my wife bore me two sons. Yeah, what about the other ten? Okay. One of them, however, has gone away from me, and I said he must have been torn to pieces by wild beasts. That's what they did. They took the piece of clothing, that very uh, magnificent tunic, and they dipped it in wild animals' blood and brought it to the father and said, look, is this, is this your sons? Not our brothers, but your sons. And, of course, Jacob recognized the cloak, the tunic, the robe for that, and he had to come to the conclusion that Joseph had been mauled by an animal and killed for it. So they're recounting this, and it's all true all the way through for this. And so, in a sense, the story has turned. Certainly Judah has turned with this. And we can see Jacob's point of view. He thinks that Joseph is dead. The other is the only other son that is of the same mother that he is doting on for this, ignoring the other ten, in a sense, that's part of the problem within the family uh, with this. And you can just see, make your own applications to modern life. It's not that far away in some ways, in some families. For that. Again, we've got the play on words going down to Sheol. So Jacob believes that he is going to do that. So, all this is recounted. Verse 32, Judah is still speaking. Besides, I, your servant, have guaranteed the boy's safety for my father by saying, if I fail to bring him back to you, father, I will bear the blame before you forever. Verse 33. So now let me, your servant, remain in place of the boy as the slave of my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. He actually had promised it. We were wondering, will he actually do it? Yes, he does. And so Judah has made a 180 degree change. He does actually give himself in place. How could I go back to my father? If the boy were not with me, I could not bear to see the anguish that would overcome my father. He has changed. He has matured. He didn't care earlier. He didn't care about much of anything with his daughter-in-law. Everything else was a part of that. Now it is different. This brings us to chapter 45. And this is now where it all comes together. Joseph could no longer restrain himself in the presence of all his attendants, so he cried out, Have everyone withdraw from me? So they all leave him. And he finally identifies himself, reveals himself in verse 3 of chapter 45. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Of course, they're dumbfounded. 
says, come, take a look. It is really me. For that. And in verse 7, God therefore sent me on ahead of you to ensure for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives in an extraordinary deliverance. Gives God the credit for all of it. For all of it. And so then he sends them back and he wants them to bring Jacob down there. It would be better for them during this famine. They are reunited. And, of course, they are glad that everything's worked out and they head back. In verse 22, he also gave to each of them a set of clothes. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothes. Clothing, clothing, the theme that has been the thread that has gone through the entire story, even in that chapter that seemed not to be long. But yet clothing was important there, the clothing that Tamar wore to disguise herself, the pieces, uh, the seal, the staff that uh, Judah had that identified himself, the clothing again, and the gifts that he gives, clothing again. And as he sends them on their way, in verse 24, as he sent his brothers on their way, he told them, do not quarrel on the way, because he knows his brothers and he knows what they're going to do. And they probably did anyways, wondering that. Or maybe they were just stupefied for it all. But he does send them off and tells them to go for that. And they do go back. And then the chapter continues on. And it talks about some of the different descendants. Not as of much interest to us, but certainly of interest to uh, the chosen people, it's their ancestors, and it continues on for that. They bring the family back. Uh, it's almost anticlimactic for that, but it will get them back into Egypt. It will save them for this, uh, from this famine that is going on. Uh, Pharaoh himself is impressed and meets the family. The whole thing is in there. It's almost like something out of a movie, you could say, in some ways. Uh, and they end up getting seeds that they can take to be able to support themselves. Uh, it's interesting, too, that uh, as we see there in uh, chapter 47, towards the end uh, with this, uh, when I lie down with my ancestors, take me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Doesn't want Family doesn't want to be buried in Egypt again. The idea, the connotations of that uh, for it, uh, same thing, you know, the, and there'll be a reference to that uh, as they leave Egypt, take some of the bones of their ancestors with them for that. In chapter 48, Joseph is informed that his father is dying, and so he takes his two sons along and has them come to get a blessing from uh their grandfather for that. And there's an interesting scene in this. In verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, this seemed wrong to him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh, saying, that is not right, father. The other one is the firstborn. Lay your hand on his head. 
So a special blessing that is given to the firstborn. In Jewish tradition, the Israelite tradition, there are special privileges and responsibilities to the firstborn uh, for that. And Joseph is bringing his two sons so they get the blessing. And he doesn't think that it's right, that he's doing the wrong one. But in verse 19, but his father refused. I know it, son. I know. That one too shall become a people. That'll be a blessing for both. He wants the other. It all echoes back to Jacob and Esau and that deception there and doing it right or wrong. And Joseph wants to do it one way. And, but Jacob, who was a part of that deception with his brother Esau, there's all intimations and echoes of that that are there for it. You can read about that story uh, earlier in Genesis. But it's interesting that there are shades of this uh, whole incident there. It also shows, too, that while there is this right of uh, the firstborn, God is not bound by that. That's not a divine law. That's a human law. And God does not have to follow that. And oftentimes he doesn't. And it will be seen in several other places in the Old Testament stories where the firstborn is not the one that becomes chosen for a certain task or a certain thing uh, for it. So it is interesting. We've got echoes of that all the way through there. It shows some of the uh, continuation between the strands that are in the Old Testament. In chapter 49, Jacob, before he dies, gives predictions about the sons, and they're not all very positive. You can read through those and what Jacob thinks about all of his sons and what is destined for them. And then finally, he does die. And in the final chapter, we find out that there are still problems amongst the family. And for instance, in chapter 50, verse 15, now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful and thought, suppose Joseph has been nursing a grudge against us and now most certainly will pay us back in full for all the wrong that we did. They still don't trust him and with good reason. So we see all of this. If you look at the character of Joseph, he seems to be the one who can do no wrong all the way through. He's the favored one, does the right thing, follows the law very, very well. Uh, as obviously favored not only by God, but by his father, uh, favored by his father to his detriment, to his relationship with his brothers. And, um, seems that he comes off better in everything. His interpretation of the dreams, uh, he gets himself out of trouble. Everything seems to work. It might be a ways in coming, but it works out well. But yet, to think about Joseph a little bit, what might have been his motives in what he did to his brothers? Was he trying to test them? Perhaps. Were they really contrite for what they had done to him? Did he really want to do that? 
find that out, to let them realize what they had done to him and to make up for it. It took them a while, but they finally did. Were all these good things as part of that? Yes. But also, too, did he hold a grudge? Was he getting revenge on them? Was he trying to make them suffer a little bit? He knew what he was going to do. He knew that they were not going to come to any kind of fatal harm. But did he make them squirm? Did he take some pleasure in seeing them sweat and do homage to them? To him, I'm sorry, do homage to him when he bowed down. Did he stretch it out a little bit more and really make them suffer for what they had done? There's a little bit of that in there or even more than a little bit as well. These are the kinds of things that one can take a look at for this. And in looking at it, uh, to ponder it. Ponder it in terms of our own situation today and the motives that people have, and the problems within families as well, the jealousy, the envy, scheming, grudges, all these different kinds of things that are for that. And to take a look at the reconciliation that can be there too. All of these things. Life is not simple. And the importance of Judah in all of this. He really is, in some ways, more important than Joseph. It's called the Joseph story. But it's really the character of Judah. And after all, the kings and the Messiah will come from the line of Judah, not from Joseph's line. And so the importance of Judah in all of this and his journey, the change of his character, his maturing, his learning a lot of lessons. And the others like Reuben, who falls short. And he's not the one. He should have been the one. He was the firstborn. But again, God is not bound by human laws and can do what he wills. And he doesn't pick from amongst those oftentimes that are the firstborn for that. Finally, Joseph himself dies. And at the end of the book, chapter 50, verse 26 the author tells us Joseph died at the age of 110. He was embalmed and laid to rest in a coffin in Egypt. So he was buried there. But the idea of the 110 years, don't take these dates, uh, these years literally. Uh, you'll find other examples even longer than 110 years and such. It was symbolic. It was symbolic of a good life blessed by God. God is the author of life. He gives all life. If he gives an abundance of life, he is giving a blessing. And it's a way of showing that this person was blessed in their life, in their life, by a long life being given to them. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that those who had a short life were bad. Not necessarily so. Uh, God gives and takes as he wills. We can't predict what God does, 
and we can't demand what God does. But often in the Bible, the long ages will be ways of saying that this was a good person, was blessed by God in many ways, given many blessings, one of which was life and life in abundance, signified by its longevity. So we have here a fascinating story, one that moves the history along. It shows how the chosen people ended up in Egypt to begin with, and it will set the stage then for the next book of the Pentateuch, which is Exodus, which starts out with a new pharaoh that knew not Joseph coming to the throne and the enslavement of them for it after Joseph is long gone. And, of course, then the need for uh, escape from that, from an exodus, and that will be Moses who will come on the scene very early in the book of Exodus and bring them out of Egypt. You might wonder, how did they get there in the first place? And they were in the land of Canaan to begin with. Abraham came into the land of Canaan. Well, in order to survive the famine, Jacob and the family came down at the behest of Joseph, and it saved them. But Joseph is long gone now, and a pharaoh comes in that is much different and enslaves them and sets the stage for the rest of the history that moves on. So that fills in some Bible history for you, in a sense, hopefully. And it also, too, tells of something about God's activity. God is not mentioned that often in this story. But it's very clear in the author's mind, and should be in ours as well, that God is behind this, and he's guiding things. But again, as I said at the beginning of the first presentation, the old saying, God writes straight with crooked lines. And all the crooked lines of this family, and all the ins and outs and their failings and their failed relationships amongst each other, and all the striving that went there, that even got to the point of where they almost killed Joseph and really, in a sense, almost as good as killed him by selling him into slavery because he was no longer part of the family, he was no longer part of the community. He was as good as dead. And they do this to him. And he's able to survive. And he sees it as God's hand and says, you know, this is for a purpose. It was so that I could save the family. It's quite an admission on his part. And it took something for him to say that, especially when he's considering as well all that he went through at the hands of these brothers. And so while this is a story that is thousands of years away from our own experience, human nature in many ways is the same. And so the story rings true in many, many ways. And you can make applications, if not to your own family, but to other families that you know. And so you can relate to it in some ways, even if it's not part of your experience. But to realize the fallen nature of humanity, the idea that there can be redemption and reconciliation, the fact that God's will will work out, in spite of how we might try to thwart that will, whether consciously or unconsciously, in our actions and what we do, all of this, without sermonizing too much on it, 
these are things that perhaps out of this story you can think about, can ponder on. It makes the story real and alive for us. And maybe go back and read it again and pick up on the clues. See the themes of clothing, of seeing, of not seeing, of recognizing, of not recognizing. Read it like a great piece of literature, because it is in many, many ways. And there are so many other stories within the Old Testament and New Testament as well, in the Gospels especially, that tell that story, the story of the activity of God and our redemption. Here's God preparing his people for the coming of the Redeemer with all their foibles, with all their failings and such. Still, Revelation moves on for this. And it's something we can look back as we are a pilgrim people making our own way in the world with our foibles, with our failures and our sinfulness, but yet trying to respond and trying to do God's will and trying to work in accord with his will as we try to make our way. What decisions do we make? How are our relations with others? Oftentimes relations with those closest to us things to think about and ponder. Here's a family that was very, very important because these are the 12 brothers, the 12 sons of Jacob, from whom will come the 12 tribes of Israel. And the importance of them in their history, in our history as well, obviously in some ways not as important to us for it. A contrast, this family with the family of Ruth. But Ruth was important too because she was the ancestor of David. So the connotations that are there, the implications, the importance for this to think about. These stories are not just random things. They all fit within a plan of divine providence. And they give us much to meditate upon because again, God writes straight with crooked lines. We hope you enjoyed the program and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.